When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to season two of Novel Dialogue, which is a podcast that brings novelists and critics together to explore the making of novels and what to make of them. I'm one of your hosts, John Plotz, and you'll be hearing the excellent Arthi Vade, a colleague of Karina's, in other episodes throughout the fall. So today my role is to serve as a kind of rhythm section, intermittently audible behind our two leads. Our novelist is Carol Phillips and our scholar is the wonderful comparatist Karina Stan, educated in Romania, Germany, France, and the United States, author of The Art of Distances, Ethical Thinking in 20th Century Literature, and recently of a delightful series of essays on social distance, past and present. Her current book project is after the West, Europe, Humanism, and the Literary Imagination. So our novelist today, Carol Phillips, probably needs no introduction, but I will tell you inadequately and trying to edit out as many adulatory adjectives as I can, that as well as being a professor of English at Yale, an author of three books of nonfiction and a number of celebrated plays, he's the world-renowned author of, by my count, 11 novels from his 1985 The Final Passage to 2018's A View of the Empire at Sunset. So I'm going to leave it to Karina to unpack the full range of his fictional genius and focus on a single tiny point, uh, which is my own first semester as a lowly assistant professor more than two decades ago. My contemporary fiction class ended with his 1991 Cambridge. And I remember staying up late at night making a list of the words that were italicized in the book which were, they were italicized as a way of marking their strangeness to that particular narrator, whom readers see trying valiantly to make order, to make language, to make, you might say, kind of a non-italicized sense out of the strange world into which she has been thrown. The ensuing discussion with my students, who I think were still in their own kind of italicizing phrase of being away from home for the first time, and probably I was in my italicizing phase of being a professor for the first time, it remains vividly present to me. And I think it's a small token of what uh, Carol Phillips's work has done and will go on doing for those who read it, the kind of imaginative doors that it opens. So uh, that's the end of my rhythm section solo. And I will say Karina and Kaz, over to you guys. Thanks. Hi, thank you very much, John, for the lovely introduction and also for having us. And also thank you, Carol Phillips, for um, engaging in this conversation with me. So I would like to take us back to the beginning when you decided to become a writer. Um, I know that you traveled to the US for the first time at 20 after living in the UK since the age of four months. 
You took the Greyhound to California and spent a long afternoon reading Richard Wright's Native Son. And in the European tribe, you describe that experience in the following terms. And I hope it's all right that I will give a brief, brief quote from that book. You say, I felt as if an explosion had taken place inside my head. Native Son provided not so much a model, but a possibility of how I might be able to express the conundrum of my own existence. I would love to hear more about this. What was this conundrum you're referring to? And what aspects of Wright's work seem to offer a possibility of expressing it? It sounds, it sounds a little pompous now to hear the conundrum of my, no. Uh, I'm not sure I, I was thinking quite that um, clinically, although it, it probably sounded nice and, and, and grand to me a few years later to phrase it in that way. But, you know, clearly the big problem that was going on was, was it, it feels slightly embarrassing to, to say it now, was that um, I'd never read a book by a black person. You know, I'd never been offered a book that was written by somebody who looked like me, even though, you know, you'd have thought I had a, a reasonably profound affinity with literature. I mean, I was studying English at Oxford at the time, you know, I was a student. So you'd have thought that I would be a little bit more well-rounded in my reading and some teacher along the way would have spotted some nascent writing slash reading talent and um, offered me a book by a Richard Wright or a James Baldwin or a Ralph Ellison or a Wally Shoyinka or, you know, a Chebby, but nobody had. And so, you know, it was, um, it was both wonderful and, and quite daunting to, to, to realize that people who looked like me could write books and did write books. Um, but then of course there was the subject matter of the book, which was the sort of urban angst, the kind of, uh, terrible fear of a life being lived in the inner city, which was my life as a working class kid, uh, immigrant kid in England. You know, I spent most of my time reading books about, you know, Jane Austen and Vickers tea parties and, you know, a, a rather kind of middle class existence that was the norm to me. I thought that's what books had to be about. Um, so there was a kind of double whammy, you know, both the identity politics of not having read a book by a black person, but then, you know, the content as well was, 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 you know, opened up all sorts of possibilities. So Richard Wright was also important to James Baldwin, who also went to Paris at the beginning of his stay, received support from Wright, was already there. What I'm actually interested in is your own connect, what I'm interested in is your own connection with James Baldwin. Um, you recall in the life in 10 chapters that at 18 you were you say, completely overwhelmed by Baldwin's brutal prose, mm -hmm. by the sheer audacity of the first line in Blues for Mr. Charlie. Mm -hmm. So I imagine it must have been really thrilling to meet him in person in Paul de Vance. So how was that? And what was Baldwin like as a person? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, as I said, right novel, Native Summer was the first book I'd read by a black person. I had read Blues for Mr. Charlie, which is a play. Um, but, you know, I didn't really make the, you know, it was a play. I, I didn't really want to be a playwright. I wanted to be a novelist. So it was, it was not only 
overwhelming to come across a, a novel by a black person in terms of Richard Wright, but then to actually meet a writer um, a few years later um, was, you know, was very humbling and scary in a sense, you know, because you think when you meet, I'm sure every writer has a story about the first time they met a writer. And um, these days, because of the proliferation of, you know, writers besporting themselves on university campuses, you know, most likely it would happen before <laughs> university. But in my case, you know, we didn't have writers on campus. And so I wasn't going to meet a writer when I was an undergraduate. So I left and I was scrambling and living in London, trying to scramble a living in my early 20s, um, being, you know, what we could somewhat, we could aggrandize it with the phrase, you know, freelance, you know, I mean, uh, no land. So I think desperate. Um, so I would do anything to make money in order to buy a bit of time to write. So one day I had this idea that, um, you know, nobody had made a documentary on um, BBC, made all sorts of documentaries about American writers, but uh, nobody had done one on Baldwin. And I, I'd just seen one called Norman Mailer at 60. Um, so I wrote to somebody at the BBC and I just said, you know, James Baldwin is going to be 60 next year. Fancy doing a documentary about him. And much to my surprise, they said, um, sure, if you can get his permission. Uh, which was the right thing to say, you know, throw it back into my court. So I wrote to his publisher, a letter to his publisher in London, thinking there's no way I'm going to hear a reply. And I got a postcard from the south of France, from Mr. Baldwin, saying, this is my phone number, call me, and we'll let's see what we can do. Um, and, you know, with the, the, the naivete of youth, of course, I, I picked up the phone, I called him, and he said, well why don't you and your producer come down this weekend? And I thought, what producer? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't really have anything yet. Um, but I, quick, I, know, I got hold of somebody at the BBC who was prepared to, you know, sacrifice themselves and fly to Provence for the weekend. Um, and so we went down there and we did as we were told. We called Mr. Baldwin's number and he wandered up to the village square. Um, and it was... Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was obviously exciting, but it was obviously, um, uh, you know, I was almost looking at it anthropologically, you know, how do writers behave? Do they have senses of humor? Um, do they drink? Do they, you know, do they make fun of themselves? Are you, are you allowed to talk about their work or do you steer clear of that? I just didn't know how it was supposed to go, but I mean, he, he you know, he was like a regular guy and, uh, and relaxed me into, you know, regarding him right from the very beginning. Almost the first thing he said is, you know, don't call me Mr. Baldwin. My name's Jimmy. Oh, this is kind of ridiculous. He's, <laughs> at the very least, he's James. You know, I can't call him Jimmy. So that I, I feel very lucky and very grateful and then over the years I mean obviously we weren't to know that he only had four more years to live but over the years I got to know him very well not just in France but in the United States too and in Britain whenever he visited Britain so uh, yeah it was it was it was a meeting I think I would have remembered anyway without the significance of being a fan but it was a meeting that had great um, um, 
it, it had great resonance because it was the first encounter with somebody who wrote books. So, in what terms would you describe your relationship with Baldwin's writing? Well, I, I like, uh, I, I, I think that you're probably onto something when you talk about, the, you know, a concern with dignity, but I think that's probably more um, deeply connected to another word, word which is performance. Um, you know, one, one performs one's race. I mean, you know, in societies which are highly racialized, uh, you know, I hesitate to say the obvious, racist, um, you, you are backed into a corner, obviously, into performing a certain sense of yourself. I mean, obviously, this kind of performance of identity goes way beyond race. It includes gender, obviously. It includes, um, you know, in the United States of America, it begins at Ellis Island, where you change your name to something that is pronounceable. Um, you're performing. Um, but Baldwin was a great one for an interest in the performative, you know, a child preacher, um, a deep affection and love of film, um, and the soapbox as, as his career developed. And I think I, as a person who was interested in the theater um, and who grew up in a sort of society in which you were expected to perform your identity too, um, as a British colonial subject, um, you had a, a somewhat toxic identity thrust upon you that you had to sometimes act out against. Um, so for all of these reasons, I think this notion of dignity slash performance, which is at the heart of his work, was inevitably going to be a part of what I wrote. But having said all of that, obviously I wasn't thinking that consciously of it, but perhaps that's one of the reasons why I was always attracted to his work and always felt some kind of kinship with it. And, you know, you, you've already touched upon one other thing. You know, even when I hear the phrase, you know, that, conundrum of my existence that's such a baldwin phrase you know it's, it has a, a kind of a, a high preacher's tone to it and and you know obviously that is not a phrase i would use now but back in the 80s i'm sure when i was beginning writing and reading baldwin quite assiduously some of that by some process of osmosis is going yeah. to creep into work too Kaz, can I just jump in on that question of the per performance and performative to connect it to something you said earlier about knowing that you didn't want to be a playwright, that you wanted to write novels? Can you can you say more? Because that seems like there's a tension there because performative and, you know, that people line up performative with the theater, but you always, but you didn't, that's not how you thought about it. You thought about it more in terms of your, in terms of fiction writing. Yes, I mean, the, the issue about the theatre, I mean, Corinna and I were talking about this actually only the other day, is that the theatre is incredibly dependent upon a whole industry of mm. support, which, you know, begins with um, who owns the theatre, begins with, you know, you can get a first production, but you want a second production, a third production. You want your play to live beyond the three weeks or four weeks that it was in this particular space. Yeah. And this was really extremely difficult um, in Britain. Um, if you were writing a play that had any black actors in it, um, it, effectively you had no shelf life. Now, this was the same in the United States of America too. Um, but... If you were interested and if you, you know, in having some kind of a shelf life, and if you hadn't got those connections um, to a, an institution, 
um, or a director or a producer. Um, what, what I actually, to be honest, I think of as sort of old school tie connections. You know, yeah. if you don't have them, um, you're, you're really witnessing your plays, unless you're very lucky, you witness your plays, perform, and then die. And then there's a tremendous pressure on you to write another one and write another one because you're not entering any world where there's a chance to revisit it and yeah. look again. So it, it, for me, from very early, even though the theatre, I think, probably was my first love, I realised it was going to be a rather uncomfortable merry-go-round for me if I, if I went down that particular route. Yeah, thanks. One of the reasons why I began with these questions about um, Wright and Baldwin is that they were both black writers who traveled to Europe and lived there for an extended period of time. And as a European, um, as John mentioned, I'm actually from Romania, so an Eastern European, that's a sort of internal other. I am really fascinated by this because both Wright and Baldwin and so many before them defamiliarize Europe for me. So they see it from a very different vantage point, which relativizes my perceived otherness. And this is something I experienced when I read your travelogue, The European Tribe, the record of your journey through Europe uh, that you took in your 20s. And I recently came across Johnny Pitts, uh, the author of Afro-Pian, who was inspired by your travels through Europe, about which he writes. Um, Carol wandered as a young black man in his 20s through white Europe before the work of his generation had helped the continent even entertain the idea that there were black people taking an active part in his societies. The work is quietly subversive, so he writes here about the European tribe, playing with the notion of an approach white people often assume when traveling in Africa. As an outsider observing a strange tribe practicing odd rituals. He normalized the black gaze becoming an invisible eye and instead otherized Europeans as something strange and exotic with a nudge and a wink. I would love to hear more about this idea of otherizing Europeans, um, both from the perspective of writers like Wright and Baldwin, um, but also from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, um, Wright and Baldwin, um, arriving in Europe in the 1940s were effectively exchanging one world for another world. There wasn't a tremendous amount of synchronicity um, and, you know, there's not many bridges and tunnels that have been dug culturally and, you know, in, in other ways between Europe and the United States of America. Um, People had been there, you know, Josephine Baker, the jazz musicians that were there in the early part of the, the 20th century. So people had arrived, but it was still an escape from America. You know, it was another world. It was almost a world where you could begin again. Uh, and Wright did talk a little bit about it in a sort of non-racialized world, which, um, or a less racialized world than the United States of America. I think he soon found out that it was racialized, but just in other ways. Um, so, it, you know, you could go there and to a certain extent in a slightly romantic way, be free of some of the iniquities and the pressures of the United States of America. Um, 
some of that motivated their journey across the Atlantic into Europe. And as you say, quite rightly, they had a different gaze, not just on Europe, but upon themselves when they were there. I didn't feel that. I grew up in Europe um, at a time when there was a lot of um, communication and travel and, um, you know, the even politically, you know, Thatcher and Reagan as twins, you know, um, there was a lot more connective tissue. So for me, whether I got on a plane and went to America or whether I crossed the channel and went from Britain to France and then explored both East and Western Europe, I don't think I had that bump or that division or that rupture that I think Wright and Baldwin had. What I had was something else, which is this. I couldn't believe that people couldn't see that there was a black presence in Europe that went back centuries. Um, there was a, a black presence in Europe or a non-white presence in Europe that was deeply present in the mid-1980s when I wrote the book. Um, it was not just the colonial arrivals, you know, from Dutch Suriname or from Northern Africa into France or from Sub-Saharan Africa into France or the Gastarbeiter and various other migrant laborers in Germany. There was the Moors in Spain. There was the Africans in, in, on the streets of Spanish cities. It seemed to me obvious, even when I got to Moscow and the Patrice Lumumba University, which is full of students um, from Africa and Cuba and other parts of the Caribbean, it seemed to me that uh, it, it was my job to try to, or my you know, intention was to try to stitch uh, some of this reality into a narrative in a way that made people see Europe in a, a, a different way. You know, what Johnny Pitts is saying, of course, is, is you know, is, is flattering and nice, but, um, you know, it was perhaps in my mind rather simpler than this. I just thought people had no idea that um, there was a presence, but they also had no idea how to look at themselves, which is the title of the book, you know. If you can call Africa tribal, then I'm sorry, you call Europe tribal too, um, because Europe is tribal. In the same, the same ways that you look at Africa and you say, well, they're kind of tribal. They're always fighting for each other. Well, excuse me. You know, I arrived in Britain um, less than two decades after the end of the Second World War. If that's not tribal, what on earth is tribal? Um, so I was also trying to, to do, you know, I guess some of what Johnny was saying. So there was, but it wasn't, I didn't find a difficulty. I guess this is what I'm saying. There was no bump for me going to Europe uh, rocking up in a cafe in Madrid and been sitting by myself, I didn't feel like an exotic other in a way in which Baldwin might have felt like, or right. I just felt like, you know, deal with it. I grew up in Europe. It's not my problem, um, which is a sense of kind of proprietorial ownership that I don't think either Wright or Baldwin felt ever really in France. They were there for different reasons. Because you saw that you've, well, there was no bump uh, in moving between the UK and Europe, or even, you said, between the UK and the US. Um, and yet it seems to me that there is a double perspective here. Uh, for example, in your novel Dancing in the Dark, about um, the African-American entertainer Bert Williams, um, there is a moment, there are passages actually, where he and his company cross the Atlantic to the UK, and um, there is an, 
explicit reflection on the ways they are looked at by others. Um, or you have in the nature of blood, the black GI deployed in England at the end of World War II, um, which again invites reflection on what it's like to be black in the US and in the UK. So it is in some ways different, isn't it? Right, Being black in the UK or Europe and being black in the US. Yeah. So how, how would you articulate this difference? No, it's very good. I mean, it, it is different. Well, I guess I should have been more specific. There wasn't as large a bump as there would be or as large a discontinuity as there would be with um, Wright and Baldwin. For instance, um, I don't think, I think I'm probably correct in saying this, I don't think Wright or Baldwin ever wrote about, you know, uh, about France or about life in Europe before they arrived there. I mean, they obviously did after they arrived there. But I wrote about America before I came to live in America, if mm. you like. And I wrote, you know, I felt enough of a, a kind of uh, connection um, to the place. On arrival, of course, on a fuller encounter, it's absolutely true to say that, you know, identity, particularly racial identity, does not work in exactly the same way in Britain as it does in the United States of America. Um, but there was enough um, that I was able to feel um, that I recognized something, that there was enough that was going on that was familiar to me. I think um, perhaps the language, certainly in the case of the United States, States of America, perhaps not having to learn another language, although some would question whether American English is, you know, but not having to do what Baldwin had to do and Wright had to do, you know, arrive and they, they had to learn a language. They had to learn to think in a language. They never went as far as Beckett and actually wrote in that language as well. Um, but I didn't have some of the rupture and rupture, you know, ruptures that they had to navigate, but there were still things that I had to understand and still, still some things that I struggled to understand. And you're right when you point to Dancing in the Dark, because that was a novel, but specifically about, you know, reinvention and performance in the United States of America um, that I don't think I would have written if I'd have remained in Britain. I'm gonna go off script for a moment here. So let's play a game. Are you in? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know you're very fond of sports. So if you could pick one of the following, what would you have? Uh, you would have, for example, um, a ticket to travel back in time to 1951 and watch live the boxing match between Randolph Turpin and Sugar Ray Robinson that you evoke in Foreigners mm -hmm. and then have dinner with Turpin or the capacity to teleport yourself to see live every Leeds United game in a season, hmm. or the opportunity to play golf with, let's say, Hidaki Matsuyama. Okay, um, it would be it would be the Leeds. Um, it would be the you know it would be the Leeds. It would be my my. It would be the thing that spoke most clearly to my own sense of my own identity. I, golf, I love golf, you're right. But, you know, there's elements of golf. Where it's, it's a country club sport. And I play golf in the knowledge that, you know, I, <laughs> even before I get out of the car or whatever golf club, I wonder, okay, when's somebody going to look and wonder, you know, is, is that my caddy for the day? 
So I'm always aware of, yeah, golf is, 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 is always going to be that kind of a sport where anybody who um, doesn't look like they fit in um, is going to have to deal with whatever. I mean, it's kind of, I don't, I'm not sure what I'd say to, to you know, our current Masters champion, um, except you know, you were the first one. Yeah, I've got some understanding of what it means like to be the first one. Or you know, you're the only Asian guy in the room at next year's Masters dinner. Yeah, I've been there. You know, not at the Masters dinner, but I've been the only one in the room. So that conversation would last about five minutes, and then he would realize how bad I was at golf, and it would be just <laughs> disappointing for the rest of the afternoon. The the fight um, with with um, Sugar Ray Robinson and um, Turpin, yeah, I've, I was fascinated by Turpin enough to write about it, and I do sort of like boxing, but one of the things I find uncomfortable about boxing, I've only ever really been to one live boxing match, um, or one boxing fight, um, is, you know, it's summed up in the, the sort of battle royal scene in Ellison's Invisible Man, you know, the idea of people paying money and putting on dinner jackets to watch two black guys hit each other, um, makes me kind of slightly uncomfortable too. Um, so I think I'd avoid that, even though I did find the social, you know, and I do find the social um, politics uh, around boxing fascinating. Um, but, you know, just for sheer pleasure, you know, the, 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 I grew up like most working class kids in England, um, feeling passionate affiliation to a football team, which becomes a part of your identity in a way that even now as a, you know, a guy in his early sixties, I can't shake. I would never want to. And I, I feel, uh, I feel as loyal to, to that aspect of my kind of class um, and geographical origins as I do to any kind of loyalty to my racial or gender origins. It's all, it's very important to me what the history of that team and um, what, the, you know, the, the, the way in which people were basically, it's like church, people, people are able to endure a tremendous amount of psychological damage in their life because of the, the, the um, adrenaline boost that they get just for a couple of hours on a weekend, whether it's in a church or whether it's in a football ground, it just allows people to endure. Um, and that's one of the things I respect about football. At some point, Kutsia wrote in a review that your work is about what the West would like to forget. What do you think about this characterization? Well, I mean, I think there's some truth in, in that because when you grow up in a world uh, or a society and eventually that society, you know, as you travel a bit more, it becomes... Uh, you know, it becomes grand enough, perhaps, to say a world um, in which you're constantly having to explain who you are. Um, you know, you realize that the clue to who you are um, and the reason that they, they don't have answers at their fingertips is because they've been swept under the carpet or they've been conveniently um, held back or even more perniciously forgotten. Um, um, and, and so everything is a way of trying to remind people 
who I am and who people like me, who we are, whether it's people who don't have necessarily a singular sense of their identity because they have a couple of passports, which, you know, bemuses a lot of people and um, they don't understand, or whether it's because of my accent and they don't understand why you have a different accent or a different name. Everything is a way of trying to answer the questions before they come up. Um, and if those questions didn't bedevil your childhood and your adolescence, um, then perhaps you wouldn't be writing. So, I mean, I often think when Graham Greene said, um, you know, most writers are formed by the age of 14, uh, I always thought there was some truth in that because a lot of those anxieties um, are inculcated in you very early. And in my own case, it's that sense of constantly having to explain who you are um, and then realizing that it's not necessarily ignorance you've been faced with that question. It's like a kind of willful collective amnesia that many people are trying to correct teachers, social workers, writers, musicians. You know, there's lots of people trying to address that willful amnesia, which is, which is often parachuted in, into society. There's a thread that has been dangling here that I feel connects to an earlier conversation and novel dialogue that we had with Orhan Pamuk. And he said something that's just been not bothering me, but it's kind of been, I've been kind of worrying it. He said that the novel is just, um, it's a middle-class form by its very nature. And, and Kaz, you talked earlier, you were talking about the kind of Jane Austen frock and hat aspect of like middle-class existence of the novels that you were subjected to. And I was trying to think about how that question of like middle-class life as content relates to the question, the way that Pamuk put it, which is just like, there's something inescapably bourgeois about the novel form. Like, I feel like I disagree with it, but I'm not sure I have the language to say why. And I just, I don't know, I thought I would put it to you. Um, well, uh, what, my response to, to that would be to say that the form itself is middle class because, you know, you need money to buy a novel or you need to be in a society or have access to a library to get novels out. I mean, it's not like TV. Um, yeah. um, it's not like comic books. Um, they cost money um, and you need time to read a novel. A lot of people don't have time to sit down and think for 15 hours, however long yeah. it takes a novel. So I think as a form, uh, as a literary form, it was, it was born into the middle classes. And I think it's all, it's always been a middle class form. So I, I agree with that. What I don't agree about, is the idea that because they're about middle-class people, that they're somehow alien from you. Because vicars and uh, middle-class people, they fall in love too. They get betrayed. They feel let down. They worry about their kids. Um, they worry about the marriage that they're in. They, you know, they have a gamut of emotions that says, why does anybody else? So reading about a bourgeois life, um, to me is as painful and illuminating and as joyful as reading about the lives of blue-collar people or the lives of 
um, you know, people from any other social strata. So I'm not, I never really was too concerned about the fact that the people I was reading about were living lives materially or otherwise or culturally or otherwise that were alien to me. Because what mattered to me was the human heart. Mm -hmm. That's what mattered. The fact that they loved, they lost, they died, they gave birth, mm -hmm. um, they dreamt. Um, you know, that's what mattered to me. If you were to write a letter to your sons, what would it be like? Given your, that you've thought so much about how relevant past how relevant past experience may or may not be. Would it be anything like Baldwin's The Fire Next Time or Tanahasi Coates' Between the World and Me or My Angelou's Letter to My Daughter? Would it be lighter in tone or what would it be like? It's a very good question. Um, I don't feel the impulse to do it right now because they're a little young, um, you know, and they're not, they're still at an age where, you know, they haven't crossed that threshold into adolescence where I think everything starts to charge around in the bloodstream and in the, in the brain and become a little confusing. So I, I wouldn't quite know what to unpick um, or try to unpick for them. Um, would I want to do that? Um, probably because it comes from, you know, in the case of all of those authors, it comes from a place of love and wanting to protect uh, the next generation um, or give them some kind of a guideline or some map or some understanding of how they might comport themselves to perhaps make this journey through life without some of the anxiety and pain that's perhaps been visited upon you or you and your generation. So it, I think it comes from a very good place, the impulse to want to do that. Would it actually, um, would it connect? Would they take it on board or would they, um, would it go in one ear and come out the other? Would they be texting as they were reading it? You know, would they be channel hopping or whatever they do these days? Would they be Instagramming as, as, as it was on one screen and they pop up on another, another platform, they're doing something? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't have a great deal of, faith in human common sense that we learn from the past. Uh, I don't actually think that the, I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming that we can be um, pretty dumb as a, as a, as a species. I mean, we're not, we're not overly blessed upstairs where it comes to learning from the past, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to make the effort, particularly with those that we love. Um, and our purpose is to protect them, to do it. But, but in general, um, you know, what's the alternative generally to not trying to get people to, to, to improve from one generation to the next um, in whatever ways you do it? I mean, what's the alternative? The alternative is to basically throw in the towel, to use a boxing analogy, is to just give up. And I don't think any of us as teachers, as writers, as educators in the broader sense, as parents, I don't think any of us want to do that. We, because to give up is, is, is to embrace a kind of darkness which, which you know, mitigates against what we do.
you know, what this podcast is about. It's trying to help people understand. Can I can I ask uh, just a tiny follow up on that? Because I, I agree with Karina, like when I when I think about what I love about your novels, I love the internal gaps, the sort of historical jumps, and also the way that they challenge the reader to think about, do we learn from the past? Like, can I look at this experience of someone, you know, 150 years ago and have it resonate? Can, can I like, are what are the, who are the other writers that you feel like you're in conversation with? I mean, I think about I don't know, I guess I think about historical novel writers like Tolstoy or like Sir Walter Scott from the past, but also people like um, Zabald, you know, are any of the, who do you, you know, who resonates for you when you, you think about what you're trying to do with past and present? Uh, you know, well, the, I think the, the writers that have over the years struck me um, as you know, struck a note, which basically I, I recognize. And I've mentioned a couple of Elliot. Yeah. Um, wrestling with the past. Uh, Sable, certainly, completely haunted by the past. Uh, I would say terrorized by the past in, in a kind of eloquent and lyrical way. Um, yeah. Could see it to a certain extent, too, particularly his earlier work. Um, so, I mean, the, and, you know, Faulkner had a huge impression upon me when I was um, a student first reading his work because it's, it's all about the difficulty slash impossibility of stitching the past to the present. Uh, and if you can't stitch the past to the present, you, you know, as, as we know, it's very difficult to, to channel away to any kind of future. But Faulkner not only had this as a sort of thematic um, uh, a thematic central beat to his work, but he, he also managed to engineer the structure of his novels mm. uh, so that they reflected that. Um, yeah. And you mentioned with the precise passages. That's what Faulkner does. When he's yeah. trying to slip time, he uses italics, and uh, he doesn't always give you very clear guidelines and a very clear map through the work. You have to do a little bit of the work yourself um, you have to do a little labor um, to understand how the past relates to the present uh, but that's a similar kind of labor to, the, to that which the characters are trying to do as well so there's almost a sort of a sense that um, you're in this together you know in a novel like Absalom Absalom you know you can tell these two young people well, yeah, I'm reading it as a young person too, and they're struggling. I'm struggling a little bit to know what's going on. So, but you get there in the end because you know that that's the only, only by moving forward and, and doing that work will a more coherent picture become uh, visible to you. Mm. Thanks. By the way, I'm struggling, uh, and this is the signature. Uh, question of this podcast. <laughs> so what do you do when you're struggling with writing? Uh, what's your favorite treat? And it doesn't have to be food. It can be anything, whatever it is that you do. Well, my favorite treat is to stop writing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, I don't feel obliged to write. I write because I've got something to say. And I think if, as soon as I haven't got anything to say, 
um, I'm quite happy to stop. Um, you know, it's, it's I, I don't want to get into the habit of feeling like a columnist. You know, I, I used to write for the newspaper, The Guardian, and they offered me a column. They said, well, we'll give you like a column and, you know, you'll file every two weeks and the, the, the contract will be fatter and more, you know, more remuneration, greater security. And I said, no, I don't want a column because what's going to happen is some weeks I'm actually going to have nothing to say. And yet I'm contractually obliged to write 2,000 words. Um, so, you know, I settled for my sort of loose, rather insecure arrangement with them, whereby if I had something to say, I would tell them and they could actually keep all the power to themselves and say, well, ah, that's boring. Um, but I prefer that um, because I don't ever want to become the sort of person that writes just because they're a writer. Um, I, I kind of began this peasant's pilgrimage into the heart of this profession with the idea that I have something to say. Um, and I sort of made a pledge to myself that when I didn't have anything to say, I'd have the good manners to shut up. Um, so yeah, when I'm running into trouble, yeah, I, I would much rather open a bottle of beer and watch a football game on the TV or soccer on the TV, much rather do that than write. Much rather do that. Um, but then there are times when actually I'd much rather be at my desk. Um, but if I'm at my desk and thinking, yeah, then that's fine. <laughs> there's always soccer on the TV these days and there's always beer in the fridge. <laughs> All right. Well, I think with that, I think uh, that's my cue to thank you both for uh, this terrific conversation. Thank thanks so much, Kaz. Thanks, Karina. It's great. No, thank you both very much. Thank you. And I'll just yeah. say um, that Arthi and I would like to thank the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship of the podcast and also acknowledge support from uh, both Duke and Brandeis University and uh, tell you that since the start, Nye Kim has been our production intern and designer and Claire Ogden, our sound engineer. So please, if you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And tell your friends uh, about us. Novelists from season one included Teju Cole, Orhan Pamuk, and Helen Garner. While this season, airing throughout the fall, includes uh, Sigrid Nunez, Jennifer Egan, and Viet Nguyen. So from all of us here at the Butcher's Convention, thank you for listening and hope to talk to you again soon. Bye.